Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Cadence Neenan. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we'll be discussing some of the concrete actions ballet companies are finally taking as they begin to confront the industry's long and ongoing history of racism, talking about why it's more critical than ever for dance organizations to prioritize their dancers' mental health, getting into the dance aspects of Rihanna's Savage Ex Fenty extravaganza, and hearing a message from Ingrid Silva, a member of Dance Theatre of Harlem and the founder of the advocacy organization Empower New York. Um, first, though, just another reminder to sign up for our newsletter. It is a daily dance digest that only takes about a minute to read. It's very quick, but it's not all business. Um, we do compile the most urgent dance headlines, but we also try to get some deeper dive think pieces in there each day, and then some lighter or delightful or content as well. So you can sign up for the newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. And as we were saying during the planning for this episode, it feels like there's so much capital N news happening in the world, but things are maybe slightly less busy on the dance front, which is sort of a relief. Um, Cadence, would you get us started? Sure. Uh, the Joffrey Ballet of Chicago announced the cancellation of its entire 2020-21 season at the Lyric Opera House. Joffrey leadership said that the decision will likely cost the organization upwards of $9 million at the box office and announced the establishment of a relief fund dubbed the Joffrey Crisis Stabilization Fund. Still, Joffrey dancers' contracts are guaranteed through next May, and the company has plans for a virtual programming initiative. Not surprising, but still disheartening. The organizers of Rio de Janeiro's Carnival have indefinitely suspended the annual parade, citing safety concerns related to COVID-19. This is the first such suspension since the Samba Parade became official in 1932. Uh, in order to stay afloat amid COVID-related restrictions, Britain's Royal Opera House is selling a David Hockney painting. The portrait of Sir David Webster has an estimated price between 11 million and 18 million pounds. Proceeds of the sale will be used to support the Opera House's artists, including dancers the Royal Ballet. And in slightly more cheerful Royal Ballet news, uh, much to my personal surprise, uh, World Ballet Day is returning for its seventh year on October 29th, with the Australian Ballet, the Bolshoi Ballet, and the Royal Ballet anchoring the programming. Now, the complete list of participating companies is still to be announced, but the live-streamed event promises to give an inside look at how these companies are adapting as they return to studios and stages. Yeah, you are not the only one surprised by that. I am very curious to see how that's going to happen. Tyler Peck, the resident queen of virtual ballet class, is collaborating with CLI Studios on a streaming event titled A New Stage, featuring performances curated by Peck, which will highlight stars of the concert, commercial, and Broadway dance worlds. The performance will premiere Friday, October 16th, and will be available for streaming with a ticket purchase. And English National Ballet lead principal Isaac Hernandez is making the leap to the small screen with a new Netflix show in which he plays a mysterious ballet dancer in 1950s Spain. The three-episode miniseries, Someone Has to Die, starts streaming on October 16th. I love how dramatic that title is. I'm all about that. I can't wait. Um, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, American Ballet Theater, Ballet Hispanico, Dance Theater of Harlem, and New York City Ballet have all joined forces to present an all-new voting initiative called hashtag NYC Dance Unites. The campaign launched October 2nd on each company's respective social media platforms and websites and will be an ongoing social advocacy initiative focused on voter turnout, encouraging dancers, dance makers, and dance advocates to make their voices heard. 
Get out that vote, everybody. And Dance USA has some great resources in terms of how you can help get the vote out more specifically as a dancer or a member of a dance organization. We'll link to that in our episode description. The 2020 cohort of MacArthur Fellows was announced this week, and in some much-needed good news, Ralph Lemon was among the recipients of the so-called Genius Grants, which come in the form of a $625,000 no-strings-attached award distributed over five years. Massive congratulations, and dare I say it, about time. He's actually the oldest recipient in this year's cohort. Absolutely about time. And how much do I wish that we could end on that high note? But instead, we have some late breaking news. Uh, It seems that controversy continues to follow the French film Cuties, a recent Netflix release about a young Senegalese girl living in Paris who joins a girls dance crew. Just yesterday, Netflix was indicted by a Texas grand jury on a criminal charge which alleges the streaming service promoted lewd visual material of a child in its promotion of the film. Netflix responded by saying that the charge is without merit and that the streaming service continues to stand by the film. If you'd like to know our feelings about this whole cuties uproar, please just go listen to episode 29. We got all the way into it. Because if I start to go down this path right now, there's no pulling me back out of it. I can't. And that'll be the whole episode. That will be the entire episode. Okay. So in many of our recent episodes, we've talked about how the ballet world in particular is in the midst of a reckoning with systemic racism. And There's been a lot of talking. There's been a lot of performative posting on social media. We've seen a lot of statements issued by these companies. But in our next segment, we'd like to talk about two real material steps toward equity made by two very different ballet organizations, the Paris Opera and Utah's Ballet West. And let's start with the opera since they're in an earlier phase of this journey. And wow, are they long overdue to begin it. Yeah, conversations about racism and inclusion at the Paris Opera kind of began back in 2015 when Benjamin Milpied denounced the ballet company's insidious racism after taking the reins. He spoke a lot about aspiring to free the company from its strict adherence to tradition, but of course left the post after a little more than a year. But recently, a manifesto signed by 400 of the Paris Opera's staff called for significant changes, including an outright ban on blackface. They called for space within the Palais Garnier to no longer be referred to using outdated racist titles. They called for tights and shoes that reflect diverse skin tones and an end to the quote-unquote silence that surrounds the race issue. Uh, The institution's new director, Alexander Neef, applauded the staff for their courage in speaking out and has since assembled a team of outside experts to examine a whole slew of race issues, with a report expected to be delivered in December. I think it's worth noting that, you know, you referenced when Benjamin Millipied was director, one of the things he talked about was being told, no, you can't have a dancer of color on stage in the core of Swan Lake because it'll interrupt the line. And I, I do not... I wish I could say I do not understand how at this stage in history and in time, this is still a thing, but I'm not actually surprised anymore. There's Uh. so much head shaking happening in the background here. (laughs) So it's good to see that they're making an effort and hopefully this turns into some actual action rather than it just being lip service. I think it's really good that the manifesto included some specific expectations. Hopefully, the company will at least be able to meet those that were delineated. I think that's like a really good organizing strategy on the part of the staff. Well, and hopefully at some time in the near future, we'll hear an announcement from the Paris Opera similar to the announcement that came out of Ballet West last week. 
that company has already completed its own three-month inclusivity audit. Um, although we should note, it was not an external audit. It was conducted by artistic director Adam Sklut and involved the troops, dancers and costume designers, makeup artists and wardrobe staff. But it was fairly exhaustive. And as a result, they've issued some new policies on costuming and makeup that are encouraging. Yeah, so some examples of this, eliminating historic, quote unquote, paling body makeup for women, again, doing things like Swan Lake and Giselle, uh, not allowing makeup that attempts to indicate a race or ethnicity other than the dancer's own. Uh, tights and shoe straps will be supplied by the company to artists to more accurately match individual skin tones, and the company will dye point shoes and paint slippers to match the skin tone of the dancers. So these are relatively small steps as an audience member, right? Like you might not realize that this is going on, but this is huge in terms of company culture and communicating, yes, you are welcome here and yes, we want you here to dancers of color. Because it is so meaningful and because the changes are so simple, to, I mean, in terms of logistically, they're so simple, I really hope that this becomes a movement, that we see this kind of change at ballet companies across the country, across the world, simple to implement, a very important message to send. So now we'd like to discuss another area in which dance companies, and actually particularly ballet companies, have historically fallen short, and that is mental health. We've talked about mental health a fair amount on the podcast, especially during this uniquely stressful pandemic era. But we really wanted to discuss the essay that Dance Magazine published this week by New York City Ballet Principal Abby Stafford. In it, Stafford reveals that she has generalized anxiety disorder and that its effects have actually been so severe that she took a leave of absence from the company beginning last December. She said some pretty damning things about how little help she got from the company and its leaders. Um, she said that, in fact, she was encouraged to hide any emotional vulnerabilities. And she called out not just City Ballet, but the wider professional dance community for the incredible pressures it exerts on dancers and the lack of support it provides to those with mental health conditions. I think first off, we have to give massive kudos to Abby for having the courage mm -hmm. to write this story and to be um, so vulnerable in what she shared and in so doing you know, shedding light that I think really needs to be shed so that we can help get rid of this stigma that exists around mental health issues for dancers. I would love to say like the way that we are no longer encouraged to hide injuries and work through injuries. No, you're upfront about it. You keep communicating about it. You go through therapy. You do what your body needs. I would love to say like, yeah, let's like catch up the mental health to the physical health, like the way that we treat those things. But frankly, like people still aren't necessarily always encouraged and enabled to be able to talk about physical issues. So I think what this really ties into is this ongoing myth or narrative that if you are running into problems, be them with your physical body, be them with your mental health, Showing that is oftentimes perceived as, oh, this is a sign of weakness. It means you're not tough enough. It means you're not, you don't want it enough to make it. And that is so deeply harmful and problematic and really essentially eliminating really wonderful artists from being able to participate in this field because of the lack of support. One of the things that was really striking in Abby's essay was she talked about an incident where before going on stage, she had a full-on anxiety attack. And 
at the time, ballet master in chief, again at the time, Peter Martins, appeared to be supportive and understanding. And then fast forward a couple of years, and he pulled out that incident as a reason why she was not a reliable dancer, which is absolutely disgusting. And let it be said, someone's mental health should never be used as a weapon against them, ever. Speaking of someone with generalized anxiety disorder, anyone who's ever had a panic attack can tell you that they are also supremely physical. So not that there is ever a reason to use a person's mental health against them, but it's a situation in which it's essentially like she was suffering an injury. It's likely that physically her body was suffering in that moment. So that feels so particularly cruel to use against her. It made me just so deeply upset to read. One of the really important things that I felt Abby mentioned was that psychological services should be made available to all dancers and artistic staff at ballet companies. Just as PTs are available and general practitioners are available, psychological professionals should be available because it's caring for dancer health in the same way. It's making dancer health a priority. And when we say that dancer health is a priority, it needs to be all aspects, not just the physical, or we're going to keep seeing rates of burnout, rates of depression. And I would like to point out that this is not a new issue. I think oftentimes it's easy to frame as like, oh, well, everyone thinks they're depressed today or whatever other stupid things people like to say. But like if you go into dance history, for example, Sir Kenneth Macmillan uh, was being groomed to be like a star dancer with the Royal Ballet. And then when he was like 20 or 21, he was having such bad anxiety attacks before he went on stage that he retired from performing at 20. And that is decades and decades and decades ago. Yeah, I do think while it is long part of the history of the dance world, I think that in this moment when during the pandemic, a lot of people both inside and outside of dance have been struggling with mental health. Let's remember that as we start to return to studios and stages. Let's harness that empathy to help create a dance world that is more supportive of dancers' mental health needs. So In our next segment, we're moving into the pop culture side of the dance universe. We're going to discuss Rihanna's Savage X Fenty event, which in theory was a fashion show. In practice, a solid 80% of it was this expertly constructed dance performance um, choreographed by Paris Goebel. And we do want to talk about the dancing specifically and the types of bodies doing that dancing, for which both Rihanna and Goebel earned a lot of praise. We also want to touch on the fact that while Inclusivity was supposed to be one of the show's keystones. You know, diversity is is central to the whole Fenty ethos. The insensitive use of a sacred Islamic text in the performance did raise questions about exactly who is included in the brand's version of inclusive. So I think I want to be upfront and say that I wasn't able to catch the show because I'm poor and don't like Amazon. Um, oh my God, retweet, retweet <laughs> so hard. But just from all the trailers and photos and people who I'm aware made cameos, I just am strongly considering getting Amazon for a month so I can watch this show, if only so I can watch my favorite TikTok star, Dexter Mayfield, make a cameo. It was really fantastic to see him, and he does have a very featured role in it. Does Jeff Bezos get my money? Oh, it's so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think it's worth noting that since this line launched, uh, They've been really, really, really big on showing gender inclusivity, showing racial inclusivity, showing body type inclusivity. The idea is that this is lingerie for everyone and everyone feeling empowered in the bodies that they are in. I was able to see it because I 
have children and therefore <laughs> Amazon's evils are have become sort of a necessity. I'm not, I can't deal with the diapers otherwise. Um, <laughs> but I, I did personally love a lot of the show because it was so clearly a product of Paris's very specific genius. She was mm. also a featured performer. She's the second person you see after Rihanna. I will never be sad about seeing her dancing. <laughs> I loved the dance references that she made, which were some of them quite sophisticated. There was a whole sequence in a factory with a lot of long tables that had shades of one flat thing reproduced, a little foresight in there. There was a little hey big spender in there, Love. a little Fosse happening. And I appreciated in particular how deliberate they were in their approach to bodily diversity. Mm -hmm. um, just the mix of bodies on display in lingerie pointedly Love to see that. Want to see more of that. But let's talk a little about the Hadith moment. Yeah. So there has been quite a bit of controversy following the premiere of the show. Um, as the show included the song Doom, it's a track by producer Cuckoo Chloe that samples a Hadith, which if you aren't aware, I had to do some research, is a collection of traditional Muslim phrases from the Prophet Muhammad. It's used as guidance for those of the Islamic faith. So a lot of Muslim people were you know, upset to see this sacred text being used in a way that they saw as cultural appropriation and in particular being used for a lingerie show. After receiving criticism on social media, both Rihanna and the song's producer apologized publicly, and the song's producer actually announced that she would remove the song from all streaming platforms moving forward. Which is the right answer. But I think everyone in the performing arts should think more carefully about what it means to be truly inclusive. And I think corporate inclusivity in particular it shouldn't be reflexively applauded. Like a lot of brands have made a lot of noise about diversity because it's a good business practice. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that Rihanna's support of the cause is genuine. She does seem to have truly good intentions here. And the fact that they both issued those apologies mm -hmm. so quickly speaks to that. And I think her apology was really well done, I will say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in last year's Savage X Fenty show, she mm -hmm. also had models wear scarves around their heads like hijabs. So this isn't her first brush with cultural appropriation. And it's worth noting that a fashion show in particular, it's never solely a work of art. Like this is also a marketing campaign and its end goal is to sell product. So brands like Fenty have even more to prove when they say that they prioritize diversity. They have to show us that they are earnest in their efforts to make inclusivity a value and not just a selling point end rant retweet <laughs> can i get like an audio button that is the sound of me nodding oh no i need a nodding button too i think we all need nodding buttons <laughs> so now we have the next installment in our voice memo series and this week our message is from you know i was like trying to find a catch-all term to describe her but i'm just going to use the word superwoman superwoman ingrid silva she is a brazilian ballet dancer who is currently a member of dance theater of harlem she is also the founder of empower her new york which advocates for and creates opportunities for women um, and that organization has a new project bringing awareness to racial bias in healthcare. For years, Ingrid had, has also been an important voice in the conversation about racism in the ballet world. She's the co-founder of Blacks in Ballet, which highlights Black ballet dancers worldwide. Just this week, she made the global list of most influential people of African descent in the humanitarian and activism category. And she is about to be a mom. She's expecting her first child very soon. So now you can see why I chose the word superwoman this <laughs> apt. Um, here she is to talk about everything she has going on. Hey there, Dance Edit listeners. My name is Ingrid Silva, and I am so excited to be here today. 
I personally have been affected by this pandemic as many other dancers and dance organizations. Our performances at the State of Harlem were canceled back in March. That held us back for quite some time, but we never stopped. We were able to take class at home, rehearse, and stay in shape as we are doing now. Hopefully, looking forward and being optimistic so we can find a cure and get back on stage. I found Empower New York two years ago. We are heading to year three. And I can't express how exciting is this project. We've been involved in many ways in helping women potentially to be the best as they can. Recently in March, we launched the call in partnership with the Block Agency. The call, it's a campaign that highlights and brings awareness to racial bias in healthcare. For a long time, and still now, the Black community has suffered by being mistreated in hospitals or not understood or taken seriously because of these problems. In New York, the highest rate for death through birth, giving birth, it's Black women. We need to find ways to capacitate healthcare workers and doctors and many others who work in this field to support the Black community. We've created a petition and we would love for you to sign it. So please join us at www.empowhernewyork.org. We count with you. I have been engaged with my work going towards diversity in dance deeply, especially in these past few months. Not just because of the movement of Black Lives Matter, because that's not a simple hashtag. It's a movement that we've been trying to bring awareness for a while. But especially I have been using my voice as much as I can in our dance community. It's really important to not just say that we are opening doors, but making these changes in every dance community you are part of it. So in March, I launched with Fabio Mariano and Juan Galdino, two other dancers, Blacks in Ballet, which is a community that we have it online on Instagram. I would love to invite you to come join us where we are featuring one classical ballet dancer from all over the world. We wanted to normalize one of the most interesting things, especially when you say, hey, my name is Ingrid. I am a dancer. And then people go, wow, you are a dancer? Yeah, that still surprised so many. And for that reason, we want to normalize it. We as a black community and black dancers are multi-talented and we are capable of everything and anything. And we would love inclusion and opportunity in every dance school, in every dance company. It's important to have this stage full of diversity and a space that represents everyone. I am so excited to welcome our little bundle of joy this year. It's been a wonderful surprise and a huge blessing. Motherhood has changed my vision in many ways. As a dancer, it's so interesting. And we still have that taboo that dancers can have their families or that we don't have enough time or we need to dedicate it, our careers just to dance. I think we are 
and changing as dancers, as artists. Times are evolving and you are capable of doing both. I am really looking forward to what this journey has to offer me and how dance will change my vision as well. Um, I've been feeling great. I have been dancing ever since. I have been bike riding three times a week, pretty much active as I would be. I'm very energetic. So I am very excited about, and I can't wait. I can't wait very, very soon. Also, motherhood has taught me so many things. And one of them, which is really important, is patient throughout my journey. Also, don't compare yourself with anyone. Your journey is unique as you are. My hopes for the dance world is that we remain strong, positive, and creative. It's a community that has changed so many lives, have made so many lives special. For us to survive and thrive, I believe that being creative and bringing ballet and bringing any other dance to the highest as they can be. Also using the new influencers and choreographers with their own point of view. It's also important to create dance that it's fresh, new, and updated. It's really important because we also have new young dancers coming who are excited to see what dance has to offer them. And I believe that, yes, we can have history with dance, but it's also beautiful and important to evolve. Ingrid said so many important things in that message, and she's such a general inspiration. But I did want to in particular thank her for shedding further light on the really serious issue of racial bias in medicine. I think it's so important for people, but especially dancers, to be aware of. And I think we're going to link to the petition that she mentioned. So make sure to check it out and sign that. Yes, we will absolutely link to both empowherny.com in the episode description and also specifically to the petition that she mentioned asking for mandatory unconscious bias training in hospitals. Um, Be sure also to follow her on Instagram at Ingrid Silva to keep up with everything she's doing, including her motherhood journey. I mean, the bump pictures, the pictures of her dog, Frida, who's the big sister. They're just the best. So um, thank you so much for that, Ingrid. And congratulations. Congrats. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.